Test, test. Test, test. All right, we're live. Eric Anders Lang Show. Special guest today, Wyndham Clark. Wyndham, uh, PGA Tour player, is that a job or a dream? How do you how do you see it? Um, yeah, well, growing up, definitely a, a dream and still is a dream. But as you start playing a lot more, it starts to become a lot more of a job. Um, the travel can be pretty taxing. The stress, the pressure, all that can be taxing. But at the end of the day, when you know I'm teeing a ball up and playing in front of thousands of people and not in a cubicle, it, you know, it leans more towards the dream. I mean, I have so many, uh, so many. There we go. I mixed the mics up. All right. I have so many like questions about that because I also travel a lot, and you know, a lot of people I think look at my job and they're like, "Dream job, love to have it." Jealous. Oh, he's got the life. But in the, in kind of the 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 realer sense of it, it's like exhausting. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't really come out there and say that. Like, I'm not like on Instagram being like, "I'm so tired. This is such a tough job." But I think a lot of people don't see that. And when you talk about the travel being tough, like, can you explain like what that actually looks like in a week? I mean, it's like you book a flight hours before you go to the airport. I'm assuming mm-hmm. you've got bags. You've got a you're traveling with all sorts of items that people don't normally travel with. I'm assuming like yep, yep. Mas- massage things and like, yeah. right. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the travel, um, you know, it all months in advance, you know, it's easy on paper. It's like, all right, we got our hotels, we got our flights, but it doesn't always work out that way. You miss cuts or weather or whatever it is. And, um, so then everything changes. And so typically I get in on a Monday and you know, Sunday night or Monday, and then we have a practice round and, you know, our tournament. But if you miss the cut Friday and, you know, you don't – we're in the middle of nowhere tournament or you just want to go home, I mean, you change a flight, you fly home, which is even more travel. Yeah. And then you're there for a couple of days, and then you go back out to the tournament or you go to the tournament early. And it's just – you know, it gets taxing. You're taking – you know, you're flying, you know, on average probably three to four flights or probably three flights a week. <laughs> and, you know, I'm – I was a rookie last year, so I was doing five, six weeks in a row. And it's just, I mean, you're gone for six weeks and in hotel rooms. And, you know, it's just, it's tough on relationships. It's tough on, you know, your, your mind and everything. Um, but at the same time, like you said, you don't really want to complain about it because it is very fun to travel. But when you do it 30 plus weeks a year, it's like, man, I just kind of want to be at home and chill. So what, it, so I'm assuming you're, I heard the PGA Tour has like a deal with United Airlines. Are you flying commercial or is it like private when you can um i I don't fly private that often unless um a buddy sets me up with that who's the who's the buddy that's gonna well just guys on tour so that's the one nice thing uh perk if you become friends with some guys that have um or create relationships with guys on tour that have been out there for a long time they usually fly fly private and sometimes like hey you want to hop on and can you can you do you ask or are you like i'm not gonna ask (laughs) i It's a little uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't want to be that guy to ask. So the nice thing, Ryan Moore was um, my rookie year was awesome with me. So I lived in Vegas prior to moving here in uh, in Scottsdale, and he, anytime we were in the tournament together, and he was flying home, he'd send me a text, "Hey, if you want a flight home, you can hop on." And he was awesome. He didn't make me pay, and it was definitely a very you know luxurious thing. Oh, because he could easily hit you with a Venmo after. Oh yeah, Venmo for a couple thousand, and so. As I started, you know, it's funny about that, and I'd give him crap for it too. Is as I started playing better, and I locked up my car, and, and I made it to the playoffs. He said, "Hey, after this event, you want to fly home?" And um, I was like, "Yeah, sure, sure, whatever." He goes, "Yeah, it's it's going to be about twenty five hundred And and so he hit me with the hit me with the you know the Venmo, and I was like, "Man, I already had a flight for two hundred dollars home. I don't know if I can justify spending 
twenty five hundred. So because on the the truth is, like, I mean, it, I don't know about you, but you know, we were in Korea together. Yep. Like that's a long leg, and in some ways, those flights are easier than like two two hour flights. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Especially if you're going from Florida to. Well, I guess Florida, Arizona, you're going to get a direct. But, yeah. you know, a lot of times you don't have a direct option. Yeah. Um, was that a decision when you decided to move to Arizona? Was that part of the decision? Is no, like, you know, it's actually – so I fly United mainly. Yeah. And, uh, what do you have, what's your status? You just be well, 1K easy. Yeah, I'm so mad. I missed getting 1K by like 5,000 miles. So I'm, I'm platinum. And you so, didn't just go for the mileage run? You well, weren't just like, I'm in. Well, I wasn't paying attention. And then it <sighs> happened. And so I'm trying to ask them. I'm like, hey, I've been platinum the last two years. Is there any way you can bump me up or something? Right. Um, but moving here uh, is worse for United. It's American oh, Southwest Hub. And um, in Vegas, they actually had United sure. kind of mini hub. So it's easier to fly to there. Um, but what's tough is, you know, sometimes the United flight is – you know, it has one or two stops. Yeah. And then the Southwest has a direct. So you want to do that. But then, you know, my bag's always overweight. 80 pounds, I have I'm multiple sure. bags. So How then, many bags? Well, I have two. So I have my golf bag, a really huge travel one. Yeah. And I have like a duffel I carry and then a backpack. So, okay. you know, I only check two bags, but they're both 70 pounds each. Yeah. 65. Filled with golf shoes. Everything. Yes. <laughs> And so then I, I, you know, I get a Southwest flight for whatever, and then it's adding on another 150, 200 bucks, which is, you know, whatever. But it's just after a while, you're like, I don't want to just keep spending this kind of money when, yeah, you know, you're gonna play in 28 tournaments this year. Yeah, probably. Yeah, roughly about that many. Yeah, that's a lot, especially when it's on both ends of the tournament. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but you know, as far as the airlines go, you can do a status match. So you take your status on one airline, you call the other one, and you're like, yo, I'm X on this airline. Yep. Will you match? Have you heard of this? Yeah, I have. Um, so the only problem living here is Southwest doesn't they, really have that. They don't care. They don't really care. So I've, I'm like an A-list guy, but <laughs> like, uh, we don't care. Your bag's still overweight. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like, with American and stuff, I think they do that. We flew uh, last night L.A. to Phoenix, and um, 737 Southwest Airlines uh, – I, we checked in and I was like, "Yo, can I just pick my seat?" And because I don't really fly Southwest that much, and they're like, "We don't do that." Yeah. And yeah. I was like, "Okay." And then they were like, "But don't worry, there's only 14 people on the flight." Oh wow! 144 seats. You got, one, people. you got one of the lucky flights. We took <laughs> off. We took off like eight seconds after they started the engines. Like the plane was like a paper That's airplane. Incredible. Um. So so um the travel stuff is a lot. What else as far as like you know, getting in, getting grounded. Well, I guess what I wanted to go to was when you talked about sort of teeing it up and in front of people, you know, I uh, am an okay golfer and I do sometimes have this experience of walking down the fairway, outfit is on point, shoes feel good, glove is brand new, ball is in the middle of the fairway. What do you, do you have a feeling at a tournament or in an event that is the most like sweet for you, you know what I mean? Is it like the draining of a putt? Is it a good chip? Is it a drive? Um, you know what? Actually, is that there's there's two for me. Um, one just because growing up, obviously I, I watched a lot of Tiger. You, I grew up in the Tiger era, and during his prime, you know, there's some times when he'd miss some fairways, and so he'd be off the fairway, and they would line up like a little so, tunnel. Sometimes? Yeah, well, I, I don't want to riff on Tiger. Um, but they would line up, you know, make a shoot where he's trying to hit. 
And whenever I get in that situation, when there's hundreds of people, you know, lining up something, that's when I'm like, this is cool. Cause you know, I have people right there and I just, it always brings me back to watching tiger when, you know, everyone's sitting there. I'm like, man, they could get hit. And then now I'm the guy like, wow, I could hit somebody, you know? <laughs> so, um, but that's pretty cool. And then the other thing is anytime you make a putt near grandstands or in front of a lot of people and you hear that loud roar or applause, that's when I'm like, man, this is, this is pretty awesome. You talked about basically the recovery shot. Yeah. In golf, is that like part of your coaching? You know, like I spent a lot of time. I don't know if you know Brandon Hagee. He's yeah. a he's a local here as well. Yep. And we talked a lot about he has a um, acronym that he uses, OTE, Opportunity to Excel. Mm -hmm. And he really thrived on those as like, oh, I have a chance to be creative and to pull something really interesting off. Is that what would you say from a mindset standpoint is uh, where does your coaching center around now or, or your, your mindset on the golf course? Um, well, it's funny. I've always excelled in those recovery shots mainly just because um, it, it like heightens my focus. When I have a regular 150-yard shot to kind of a basic green, you know, it's sometimes I, I actually hit bad shots because you're just like I, I, I struggle to get focused. But when I have to hit it between a gap that's three feet wide, you get hyper focused, and um, yeah. So th on that point, I you know I get really focused on those. Um, but really, any any time, I just my caddy always tells me and my coach that you know I have a chance to go out and kind of show off. And I love playing in front of crowds. I played other sports growing up, and whenever there was a huge crowd, that was usually one of my best games. When it was kind of a flat gym in basketball, and there was just no one there, I kind of played flat. And when there was tons of people and tons of energy, that kind of heightened my play. And so, you know, a week like this, having a lot of people here, you know, it just gets me excited and I'm amped and I'm fun, you know, or it's just, it's going to be a lot of fun for me. So, right. Uh, so is that, is that nerves or what is that? It's, you don't sound like you're describing it as being nervous. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's definitely not nervous. It's more, it's just, I've always, you know, Kobe's one of my favorite athletes and, and Tiger was one of my favorite athletes and they always seem to be in the limelight and they always seem to perform when there was everyone watching all the cameras on them. And I think because I aspired to be like them, that when there are the cameras and are the people, I'm like, all right, this is my chance to have a moment like them or to be like them. And so, um, I don't know. It's more just, I feel more comfortable when there's a lot of people. I don't know how to explain it. Right. I think that you don't need to explain it because you know, your career to date explains it enough. Like you, I mean, getting a tour card alone is like an impossible idea when you were saying to people that that's what you wanted and you were in, I guess, before college, right? When, when did you first say, I want a PGA tour card out loud? Um, well, the dream started when I was like five or six. A little late. I, what? A little late or no? Yeah. That's, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. I started when I was three, but five or six is when I really thought, all right, you know, I really love this. Um, but in college after my freshman year, um, I had a great year and I started having agencies and people talk about, Hey, this is what you need to start doing. You're going to be on tour. That's when I was like, all right, I really know I can do this. I always thought I could, but then kind of when I had that, um, affirmation from some people saying, Hey, you're, you're going to make it on tour. Then I was like, all right. Cause I mean, you obviously, everyone has high expectations for themselves. You know, they think they can always make it, but when you have people that are in the business going, Hey, you're going to be there. I was like, all right, I'm going to be there. So even though you got into Oklahoma, that wasn't enough? Even though you got in one of the top-ranked golf schools? Um, yeah, I mean, 
a little bit. I just I hadn't played against pros. That was the one downside of growing up in Colorado is I never played against um, I never played against guys on the PJ Tour. Sure. So I only ever did maybe if I played in some you know like a state open and they happened to be there. Um, but you were the top ranked amateur. I, I was. Didn't so, bother you. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I still thought I could, but like, if I would have played against, if I grew up in Arizona and I would have grown up playing against all these guys here, and I would beat them, then I'd be like, oh, I'm for sure going to play on tour. But I never got to, so I kind of put them a little bit on the on a pedestal. Interesting. Thinking, okay, man, I I really gotta I gotta get better, which was good for me. Sure. It made me think all right, I gotta work harder. I gotta get better. But at the same time, my transition for some of my first events, I kind of put all these players on a pedestal. So ideal situation on a Sunday. Do you want to be one shot back or one shot clear? Uh, starting? On first tee time, yeah. First tee time. Um, on, I mean, obviously, I'd love to have a one shot lead. But really, if I'm just in the hunt, I think. Okay. I mean, the tournament, most tournaments don't really start till the back nine. It, it, when you're in contention, if you're within two shots, even three or four, I mean, there's crazy things that have happened. So Especially this year so far. Yeah. I mean, you can make five birdies on the back nine, or a guy can fall apart. And so as long as I'm – realistically, as long as I'm within three going to the back nine, that's a successful week, and that's where I want to be. So I know you didn't describe it as nervousness, and, and I'm not sure what that feeling is of being in front of people. I have heard and read, uh, doing some research on the mental game, that nervousness doesn't equate to bad performance. In fact – for me, I've noticed that it helps. Like, yeah. I hit my best shots when I'm super nervous. Like, you know, wherever it is, where people are watching, where I'm thinking, I got to do this. Like, that's when I actually play the best. I'm curious to know if you have a recollection of the most nerve-wracking shot you've had since turning pro. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I've had – I'm trying to think. I'm One of my first – actually, probably my first tour event was the Travelers. This was two years ago was on a sponsor exemption. And one of my first tee shots, I, I kind of blacked out. I mean, I, I, got, I was really nervous, and I knew I would be. But I played in big amateur events, but never a big, in, never a big PJ event. And there was, I don't know, say 300 people on the tee box. And um, that whole week, I had media. So there was just a lot of buildup. I didn't feel good about my game. So that's even added nerves and pressure. And I get over the first ball, and, and then I hit the ball. And I, I don't even remember, like, the whole thing. I don't even remember the whole thing. And then I'm walking down the fairway and I'm like, Oh wow, this is, you know, happening. We're, we're here we go. And so that was definitely one of the most nervous times I've been. Um, I'm trying to think one other time I had one where I'm trying to remember. Okay. So I was leading, I was leading a tournament going, um, yeah, going into Sunday at the Honda. I was really nervous Go, driving to the golf course because I was thinking I'm like this is unbelievable I'm finally in contention this is my chance to win and and just driving to the course my mind was racing and I'm like man this is and I actually I called my mental coach I called some people I said hey I need some help right now I'm really nervous and um, they actually helped me I started out really good in, in the round and I didn't finish great but there's just been a few times when I've been really nervous who's your mental coach and what advice did they give you that morning um, a guy by the name Jay Brunza. Um, he's an um, older guy that's worked with a lot of guys over the years, and um, he just one he we did some breathing, so he kind of calmed me down in that way. And then uh, we just talked about all other times where I've had leads or been in contention in college, amateur golf, and how successful I've been. And he said, "All right, let's focus on how good you did then." And you know, it's the same thing. Yes, there's more people and there's more money on the line and whatever, but it's it's the same thing. It's still golf. You still put it in the hole. And so we kind of just talked through some of that and did some positive imagery stuff. And um, 
it obviously didn't work out and win the tournament, but you know, I at least started well. And so what he helped me with that. So do you find that a lot of your colleagues on tour have mental coaches? Um, yes, some do. Most people don't really talk about it. Yeah. Uh, What's up with that? I don't know. I think a lot of guys don't want people to, uh, to know about them. You know, if they think they have someone that's better than someone else or they think, Hey man, this guy's kind of my, my leg up on someone else. I don't think they like to tell people. Reasonably so, yeah. I guess. Yeah, because everyone knows who your swing coach is, who your putting coach is, all this stuff. But no one really knows kind of what you do off the golf course. Right. So I think a lot of people try to hide that from people. So who's Wyndham on the phone with? Yeah. Who's, who's yeah. he talking to? Exactly. <laughs> and if you're playing good, people start asking those questions. They're like, <laughs> do they really? Who's Wyndham working with? What's going on? You do know? they really? Oh, yeah. It's a small world. It is. Yeah. It's a it's a small tribe. It's not a circus, That's but it's a small traveling tribe. It kind of it can be a circus at times. Do uh, do a lot of you, you know, th- there's a lot of camaraderie on tour. There's a lot of, like, you know, one of my favorite things to see is, like, um, an opponent congratulating, uh, you know, the winner or, yeah. or the successor. You know what I mean? Like, and I heard a story we filmed with Tom Watson this summer. And when he beat uh, Jack at the Open, Jack came up to him and said, you know, I gave you my best shot. But, you know, but you beat me. Mm-hmm. You, you played better. And that is something that, you know, we, we'd like to say happens in a lot of sports, but in a lot of sports, it's 12 men, or 11 men on the field or five guys on the court. Yeah. You know what I mean? Golf is one of those rare situations where even, even tennis, it's like you're actually playing against each other. But in golf, it's kind of like, do you have that feeling like you're just like, I'm playing my own game. I don't want to know the standings right now. I don't want to look at the leaderboard. Well, as far as con- I used to, it actually used to bu- bug me growing up when I see guys going congratulate another player i'm like why is he doing that like that's the guy you're trying to beat but now that i'm out here i I get why that happens because we travel so much it's so hard to win and you become friends with these guys and their success doesn't really affect your success because in that tournament if i finished eighth and he finished first i mean there's a lot of stuff that goes in i mean there's money and points and so it, it really it's not as much of a competition against guys. It, you know, golf is more of a competition against yourself in the in the golf course. Um, so I've grown to really like that, and I think that's great. And I hope when I get my first one, I hope I have my buddies out there, and um, I'll be out there for them. Um, what was the other question? The other question was, um, well, I don't, I don't think it, I think there was just a long way of asking one question. I yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Anyone listening in their car knows what the question was, but yeah. we're in the moment here, yeah. going fast. <laughs> I'm curious to know, you know, looking at what what do you care about the most in your own game right now? Like what's, what is your thing where you're like, this is, what what do you love about your game and what do you not love about your game right now? Um, Currently right now, um, I do not love how I'm putting. Okay. Uh, It's always been a huge strength for me and I haven't been putting great. Um, So kind of my putting and short game has just been off. I, after the fall season, I worked really hard on my ball striking. And that's actually improved uh, quite a bit. Um, but, of course, you know, you focus on one thing and you kind of neglect something else and it goes down. So Throughout your entire career, I'm sure. Because that happens oh, yeah. for amateurs. Oh, I yeah. go work on chipping all of a sudden. I can't – I cannot putt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's the most frustrating thing about this game is there's times when I'm putting and chipping unbelievable, but I can't get the ball in play. Right. And then there's times when I'm hitting unbelievable and I can't get a putt to fall. So it's just – it's a crazy sick game that – Someone must have done some research on that. Like, how is that possible? Like, why can't I just do the four things? Why can't I drive? I why can't I hit an iron? And why can't I chip and putt? Like, I why can't I do all four Believe things? Believe me, I've been 
<laughs> I've been wanting those days. I hope they come in bunches, but I haven't had them yet. Your best stat is driving distance. Average 306. And that's like, is that always, I don't, I'm not really clear on how that stat is measured. Is that, are you hitting three wood some of the time? I mean, well, you know, it's so funny you said that. I don't even know because yeah, like how do they, the people don't always know what you're hitting off the tee. I don't think, um, but I imagine it's gotta be a driver because there's no way you could average 306 when you're hitting four irons on some tees and hitting it 230 or 240, you know? So it's gotta be driver, but. There's times when, I mean, people must miscalculate things. Do you have different swing thoughts for different shots? Like, with driver, do you have a swing thought? Oh, I, I actually do believe there's two swings in golf. I think there's an iron, kind of iron wedge swing, and I think there's a driver swing. Okay. So, I'll, I'll agree. I agree. Because one, you're hitting down, one, you're hitting up. Yeah, of. exactly. So, a lot of times, like, I have an iron feel, and then with driver, I might be thinking about something a little different than what my iron feel is. and. That's I think that's pretty common for a lot of guys. Um, you know, some guys it maybe comes easier and they just have to think about one thing. But for me, I think about two things. How much like for the driver, for example? How much does your feel like change? You know what I mean? Like, cause I know for me, pretty much like once every one to two or three months, my feel is totally different. Like I'm like now I'm looking for this wrist condition. Now I'm looking for my right knee. Now I'm yeah. looking for um, you know like keeping those hands forward you know like how often do you switch up a feel with the driver swinger for example um yeah what changes i I think i'm always working on the same overall look for the swing okay so for me i'm always trying to make sure the club's going outside my hands and then i'm dropping it in the slot and then kind of hitting up on it and releasing it so that's kind of like the general thing but one week i might be focusing on the takeaway Ah. the next week might be all right that takeaway is great now we need to focus on dropping the slot and then now it's like, all right, the backswing, downswing starting to look good, but we're holding on to the face. So now we need to release it, you know? Right. So it kind of, and then it's in a cycle. So then it's like, oh, well, now the backswing's off. So then, <laughs> I mean, it's just this game. I mean, more and more you talk about it, the more and more you go, why do I even play this? But, we should just shut the <laughs> podcast down. <laughs> yeah. I will say, though, you are, you, this week bodes well for you. were at the beginning of the waste management. I, I don't know when this episode's going to air, but typically guests of the show, very, very good finish that week. Well, I've had it's so funny to say that I've had so many guys have played pro ams with them like hey the last three guys we played with won the tournament <laughs> or they've done this this and this and none of those have ever happened to me so I I really hope this time you're, this is you're it. right yeah this is a good week you're this is your hometown now yeah what uh what course are you at here where do you practice I play at Wisprock oh cool um Wisprock and then I'm a PXG player so we um we get to play out at Scottsdale National cool as well. how do you like Bob he's a good guy yeah Bob's a great guy yeah, yeah. um he's been awesome with me and. You know, what he does for our clubs and for the players is spectacular. That's great. All right, we're going to take a quick break, everybody. Stay tuned. All right, guys, got a read for you from Devereaux. As you know, I travel quite a lot, and I mean a lot. That's italicized, so I really am supposed to emphasize that second one. A lot. I need easy care and comfortable apparel to get me through my long trips. I just started wearing this brand that started in Arizona, by two brothers called Devereux, D-E-V-E-R-E-U-X. I actually didn't know it started in Arizona, which is pretty cool. I'm excited to meet these guys because I do really dig their clothes. I like wearing them. The fabric, the design, the fit, it's all there. Anyway, these dudes are making apparel for a lifestyle exactly like mine, like yours truly, like your guy Eric. Golf, travel, and kicking back. They design all their products with some type of performance feature. I don't know what it is. I'm going to dig into it at some point. But it adds stretch to each piece, and it keeps me comfortable, whether it's on the flight 
or on the course or at dinner afterwards. I feel kind of like a G rolling in with this Devereaux gear. Anyway, check them out. The Devereaux Brothers and their apparel at dvrxthreads.com and use my name, Eric, E-R-I-K, at checkout to receive 20% off your first order. Again, it's dvrxthreads.com. You can also find them on Insta. Use my name, Eric, E-R-I-K, at checkout to get 20% off your first order. Support the brands that support what we do. I think they're cool. You probably would, too. The pants are also rad. Quarter zips, you know, whatever. Just just have a nuts at it. 20% off your first order. That's a pretty good deal. I mean, you could save some cash if you spent some. All right, later. All right, I'm going to catch me now. We got video. Lit. <laughs> Give me a second, all right? I'm about to do an ad read for Vice Golf. I don't even have a read, so this is a this is an ad lib. This is an ad libbed lib read. Anyway, Vice Golf, you all know I love the brand. Uh, they make a great golf ball, and there are things that I would tell you in person about the golf ball that I can't tell you in a public forum. But basically, the golf ball is amazing. Technically speaking, on test, it performs as good or better than what we call, quote, the best golf ball on tour. Now, the Vice Golf Ball also has one cool thing, which is that it's cool. Obviously, the scripting is really sweet. But beyond that, as another cool thing, I'm going to keep pulling cool things out of this ball. The second cool thing is that you can't get it in a pro shop. So go online, go to vicegolf.com, and get your slick balls. They've got all different types. They've got the Tour. They've got the Drive. They've got the Pro. They've got the Pro Plus. They've got different colors. And you can also personalize less than uh, you can personalize. I don't know what number you can personalize, but you can personalize them, whereas other brands don't let you personalize them except for once a year. So check out vicegolf.com. Get yourself some smooth and cool balls for the course, that is. Anyway, y'all, see you in the showers until the next ad read. Precision Pro, folks. I'm going to do an ad-libbed Precision Pro read. Here's the thing about Precision Pro. They're made by some great guys in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's got great design. And coming out soon, you're going to get a very special colorway of the NX9 Pro with slope. Is that right? That's it. I got, I got a thumbs up in the studio here that that's the exact rangefinder. Not only do you get free battery replacement for life, but you get slope and you get laser. I mean, it is a laser, laser sharp accuracy. And you get, I don't know, you just get to be part of something cool that I'm down with. So Precision Pro is great. Obviously, the family there in Cincinnati makes some good. We did an RGC there. If you haven't seen it, check out the video on the YouTube channel. We gave everybody a rangefinder. But stay tuned. Coming around April, we're going to be releasing a random golf club version of this rangefinder. It is the most beautiful rangefinder I've ever seen on planet Earth. And I, as you know, I haven't traveled any other planets yet. I've done a lot of countries and states and towns, continents, hemispheres. But I've never left the planet. And I was just talking to someone who said that that's on their bucket list. It's not on mine. I don't share that. But on this planet, the random golf club rangefinder will literally blow your mind, but it won't blow your wallet. The rangefinder for everyone, people. Enjoy it. All right, folks. Adidas. Adidas is pushing the boundaries once again in golf footwear. And if you've been counting, I don't. I haven't been counting. It's a lot of times. But they're doing it again, so whatever many times it's been, it's at one. Uh, so you need to check this out. It's called the Code Chaos, all capitals. The footwear team let me know that this shoe was meant to break down traditional stereotypes and make a statement that there doesn't have to be one look for the sport when it comes to golf footwear. It's, it's athletic and bold from a style standpoint, but this shoe is seriously packed with technology. It's spikeless, but beyond just being tested with guys like DJ and Xander, they did heat map studies. Heat map. That means they know where you are right now. 
They literally know. And watch, I'm telling you, you're going to get an ad for Adidas footwear in your feed. I'm telling you. And I just, it's not me. I don't know if it's them. It's probably Xander, not DJ. Xander's got an X in his name, so he's a little more sinister. Even though I would not, I would probably feel more likely that DJ would really, he could he could do some damage with the club, um, to my face. So to see how players shift their weight, they use this heat mapping technology to to see where they, they shift their weight, but also where you are physically at this current moment uh, throughout the swing. So anyway, with all that info, they created a new traction system called Twist Grip. Twist Grip. That's spelled the way it sounds. Anyway, so the players get the grip they need exactly where they need it, and this is an ad lib, and when they need it. That's I just added that. Uh, it's waterproof. Waterproof is key. Let's get let's get honest, folks. If you want a waterproof shoe, unless you live in the desert, you can wear sandals or moccasins. But for everybody else, you need the waterproof shoe. So hit up the code chaos. It's waterproof, lightweight, and obviously has the boost cushioning, which we all love. There's even a high top boa version, which I'm not sure I'm man enough to rock, but John Rahm is. But he's also he's very, very good at golf. We can all agree. These things are next level, so get yourself a pair. Head over to adidas.com slash code chaos. Spelled the way it sounds. Although the CH in chaos is sounds more like a K. So it's C-O-D-E-C-H-A-O-S. And shop the styles and follow Adidas Golf on Instagram and Twitter for all the latest news from Le Trois Stripes. That's three stripes, folks. All right, one more ad read. I'll probably do another one after this. Jones Sports Go, folks. If you want the bag that I rock, it's the Jones Sports Bag. They got the Player Series. They got the original. What are the other? What's the other models they got? The stand bags? We're pulling it up in the studio, folks. But here's the thing. Jones, if you haven't seen the video on YouTube yet, please check it out. We went up there, visited with them. We designed a lot of cool stuff. We're going to be designing more stuff. We have two bags on the Random Golf Club site that have the Random Golf Club script on it. The Utility Trooper is the is the is the info I'm getting of the name of the other bag that I like. It's got the stand. It's got the stand bag. I also I I mostly rock the original, which is based on a design from the 70s. Uh, was his name Jones? His name was Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones and me. Now that guy got in a lot of trouble for some. What's that? Taxi cabs. But the but the guy who sang the song, Mr. Jones, he's no he's gotten a lot of trouble. Don't want to talk about him. But Mr. Jones, not that the song is written about, was a taxi driver in New York. He made a golf bag out of the upholstery in his taxi. And that's where Jones has come from. So they're obviously the comfortable shoulder strap on the original series is what I love. Got a lot of cargo space and you got three pockets to hold all your clubs. And you look basically like a badass. You're 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 if you're if you don't have a if you don't have a significant other at, at the start of the round, you will have one at the end. Am I right? Watch out! It's, it's you know that's the studio here says, get a Jones bag. I'm not going to say get laid, but basically that's what's going to happen. I mean, I, I didn't say it. You said it. You heard it. I didn't say it. Jones Sports Go, everybody, love them. Tailor made, folks. I got to tell you, the first golf clubs that ever went in my little old hands were Tailor made burner oversize. They had some crusty old grips that I redid myself at risk of my own fingertips with the razor, and I and I got high because I don't know if you've ever re-gripped your clubs, but you you, you become an, an inhalant addict because you're putting, like, really noxious stuff. Then don't, don't grip your own clubs unless you really want to. Anyway, mad respect. Give me a fist bump whenever I see you. I, gri- I grip my own clubs. I put the grips on them myself. I saved. How much did you save? I mean, you could save money. You save money because I think you put them on. It's like twenty bucks each, and you and you buy the grips yourself. It's like eight bucks. By the way, 
Regripping 14 clubs, I mean, you might, that's like a lot. Go buy TaylorMades instead. They come with grips. My favorite TaylorMade edition now, obviously the Sim Max I'm playing, is a monster club. One of the many things Tiger Woods have and I in common is playing the Sim. But also, I really I kind of love the wedges. The raw-faced wedges, MG. I both love the high toe in matte black. I also have a matte black shaft. I know you didn't ask, but I went ahead and told you. Anyway, TaylorMade. My favorite thing about TaylorMade beyond the incredibly performing equipment is the people that make this company up. The, the, band of, the band of brothers down here, the band of sisters, the family in Carlsbad really, really gets behind what we do. And that means it's important for you to get behind what they do. So go support TaylorMade, everybody, and hit them straight or just don't just just hit them with TaylorMades, though. Just get some just stop messing around with all the others. Hit them straight with TaylorMade, but just hit TaylorMade at least. I mean, if you're not I mean, just just go. I mean, what are you doing? Just pause the pod. Go on TaylorMade. What's their website? I don't even, they don't even need a website. Just go find TaylorMade ASAP. There should be, what? What I play? I play the, okay, Studio is asking me to play, P, I pay the P760s, P, P four through pitch. Then I've got the milled grind raw face, 50, 54, and 58. And then I rock, I'm in between the Gapper and the Sim Hybrid right now. I play the two Gapper. Uh, I've got a steel shafted six and a half Project X in that one, as with all the irons. And then on the driver, I have the uh, Sim Max with a nine degree. I'm still working on getting my numbers on that. I don't really know. I got the ten and a half and the nine. We're gonna, gonna do a little experimentation. Maybe honestly, you know what? Whatever one I don't use, how about it's yours? How about that? We're gonna. I don't know how we're gonna manage this. Head over to the Instagram account. Get ready for the old giveaway of the uh, driver that I can't hit. <laughs> anyway, TaylorMade's the family, folks. Hey, it's Claude Brothers here, Randy and Jason, and we have a couple of podcasts. If you you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy, and we have a podcast called Dumb People Town where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. So, grew up in Denver. Uh, I'm, I, I've only played golf in Denver twice, or three times, rather. And I'm, I'm curious to know if, like, when you left Denver the first time after experiencing mile-high ball flight, were you like, what a grind. The ball's not going anywhere. With the, with the altitude, it's a big difference. Yeah, well, what's more, what's actually even tougher about growing up in altitude is not necessarily uh, the distance. is more your mishits are exaggerated at sea level. And so in Colorado, you, there, you don't spin the ball as much. And so your miss hits are actually more online. So it's it's a weird thing, but Whoa. when you're in, like when I play at altitude, I, I hit the ball, you're, I mean, I'll hit off the toe, it goes straight. And if I hit off the heel, it goes straight. And then you go to, let's say you're playing at Pebble, and you do that, and the ball goes 40 yards offline. You're like, oh, my God, you know, what's, I don't understand it. And so that was the hardest thing for me growing up is I thought I was a good ball striker, and then I'd go play in Florida, and – I'm hitting all over the place. I'm like, what is going on? And so that is kind of something that most people don't maybe either know or talk about, but there's definitely a difference between altitude and sea level. Yeah, it's that thin air, I yeah. guess. Yeah. It just goes I, I don't know what it is. I think it's just I think the ball spins less and your misses are exaggerated at sea level versus up in altitude. You grew up uh you grew up there and uh played golf with some friends of mine and I actually Alexandra and I played with Alexandra and her dad, and I had the best round of the year. Oh, nice. And I was, part of me was like, 
cool it, Eric. Like, you know, he, he her dad plays golf, let it, you know what I mean? And but uh but I remember maybe that's why. Maybe I need to just go to Denver to play yeah. my best round. I mean, yeah, that's probably that's probably <laughs> why you were hitting it so good. Like I couldn't miss. It was crazy. Yeah. Um when you I I just went to the Rose Bowl and uh you know, the Ducks were in it. Yep. And I was thinking about you and I was wondering what if it was Oregon versus OSU? Well, I really hope you don't think about me that often. But, <laughs> um, well, no, but I mean, in hindsight, no, having, no, having gone to two me. really competitive schools in yeah. all sports, like, who, who would you root for? If, people ask me this all the time. I love both schools, and I root for both schools. And this might make me a front runner, but I went to both schools, so I feel like I can say this. But whoever it means the most for. So if it was a national championship, I'd be really torn. I'd have no idea. Ooh. But if it was... Um, you know, the ninth game of the year and they're playing and let's say OSU's ranked number one and Oregon's already lost twice or vice versa, then I'd root for the team that it means more for. Interesting. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my answer. That's a really good answer. Yeah. Have you gone to a bowl game? What's your favorite sport outside of golf? Uh, actually hockey. Hockey. Yeah. Do either of those schools have hockey teams? Uh, no, (laughs) no, they do not. But okay. Have you been to a bowl game? Uh, I have. Yeah. I went to, a BCS bowl game when Oklahoma State played Missouri, and it was uh, at Jerry's World in Dallas. Okay, so you were rooting. You were. You were. I rooting. was at Oklahoma State at the time. Right. So I went. Yeah. So maybe you don't have the same experience that I had because when we went to the Rose Bowl, like I have a lot of business friends and golf friends in Portland, mm-hmm. so good reason to root for the Ducks. Of course, yeah. My parents met at the University of Wisconsin, and I have other friends who live in Wisconsin, so. It was a real tear for me. I didn't. Oh, yeah. I didn't really know which side to root for. And the irony was, the the, the overall experience was like, wow, this stadium is filled fifty fifty with really? fans. Yeah. Whereas, like, I'm used to going to like a Dodger game, yeah. and it's like, all right, ninety five percent Dodger fans. Let's go Dodgers. Yeah. So it was very strange to me to have it be like down the middle. And I, I guess, you know, my experience actually was we were sitting in the duck section, and maybe it was a particularly obnoxious area. Yeah. But I mean, it was aggressive. Oh yeah, and and I guess that's just a part of college football that you don't quite see in you know baseball or NFL or. Well, you got a great game to go to being a torn fan because it came down to the last play and it was a one point victory. So yeah, and I uh, it it was such a wild and close game. Yeah, it was. It was a great game. Um, so when you what is it like to switch halfway through? It's not an experience that most professional athletes have in their amateur history. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I never thought when I was 16, 17, 18, kind of in the recruiting process, and then I end up choosing Oklahoma State, I never thought I'm going to go to another school. I had everything orange. I was – I <laughs> bled orange. I mean, that's kind of their thing there. I, I, and I still love the Pokes, and I still love OSU. But, um, you know, some things happened in my life, and a lot of changes kind of happened. We had a coaching change. Um you know, just a bunch of different things, and I just felt like I needed a, a change. I needed a fresh start, and it was really probably the best decision I've ever made in my life because um, I went from kind of – I was down in my game, transferred to Oregon, and then I had the best year of my career. Um, probably, I mean, yeah, as an amateur, it was the best year, and, you know, that helped me get out here. It got me some sponsorships, got me PXG, and so it was definitely a positive experience, but it was also a very tough one. There was a lot of things – you know, behind closed doors and with family members where it wasn't easy. I mean, I was down. I was, I mean, there's times when I didn't know where I was going to go, what I was going to do. And, um, I'm just blessed that it ended up working out as good as it did. 
Well, like what? Like I mean, I'm well, I'm I'm trying to guess. So I'm thinking like, is it like difficulty with like you know changing schools as a kid, and it's like hard to like navigate the social environment? No, well, you don't even know. Uh, you have to you have to get a full release from your coach to be able to transfer. And um, you know, for a little while, I didn't know if I was going to get a release. So then I'm stuck on the team, and um, you can't. Then you obviously he knows you don't want to be there anymore. And so then he is like, he's not going to play you. Right. So there's that issue. So then I'm like, well, I'm not going to play my senior year. Um, and then when you get the release, then it's like, all right, well now where do I go? And what's the best opportunity? It wasn't like I said, Hey, I want to transfer and I want to go play for Oregon right away. I went then on, on another like recruiting process to find which school was best for me. And then the stresses of, all right, well, I'm a fifth year. Um, I want to graduate. I want to be able to play right away. I don't want to have to sit out because, you know, I don't want already. I'm already in school for five years. I don't want right. to play anymore. Um, and then, you know, then the, the struggle of you transfer to a new team and I'm a guy coming in and um, I have to meet all new people. I don't know anyone. I, there's just a lot of things. So you felt I felt like a freshman again. Yeah. Um, yet I already been in school for four years. So it was just a, it was a weird dynamic. What did you like learn from that? What did you take away? Um. You know, I, well, I learned a lot about myself, and I also learned to – I really learned to enjoy the game more. I was really down in a rut for about two years, and I didn't like golf. I, I hated it. It was – I mean, I've, I contemplated quitting multiple times. Um, and then when I was transferred to Oregon, Casey Martin and now my caddy, but my assistant coach at the time, John Ellis, um, they really helped make golf fun again. And they improved my game. They – had a really good plan for me. They set it up exactly how I thought was the best. Well, what they thought was best, but what I also thought was best for me to succeed at the next level and that year. And so it was just, it was a very easy transition. And, um, I just, I really learned to love the game and I gained a lot of confidence that year. When you say made it fun again, I mean, I'm like, what was, was that just because they were helping your performance or was there something else? Well, golf is always fun when you're playing well. But agreed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you're shooting well, golf yeah. is fun. But no matter you, how good or bad you are, yeah, that's the interesting thing. Exactly. But if you can still have fun with the game when you're not playing well, then that you truly love the game and you are enjoying the game. I was getting to where I would shoot even par one one under, which isn't necessarily terrible, and I was pissed off and didn't even want to go practice. So I'm like, I don't even want to touch a club right now, and that's how it was for a few years. Um, and then then I got to where. You know, I just wanted to go practice. I wanted to get better. I wanted to work on my game. I wanted to do these things in golf, and and I'd have bad days, and it would motivate me to play better the next time, rather than you know demotivate me and make me feel like I don't even want to play anymore. And so it kind of it transitioned, and they just they helped make it fun. So, was it something they said, or what? What what was it that clicked? Um, well, Casey, yeah, I mean, Casey definitely mentored me a lot. He helped me with um. He introduced me to my current um, sports psychologist, uh, which helped. And then they just were very positive influences. And so they just were kept feeding me how good I was and, and kept telling me how good I'm going to be and how good, I'm gonna ha- or how good of a year I'm going to have. And just all the positivity, I started to believe that again. And, um, you know, and then I also I went out and played money games against John and, and Casey, and they are great players. And – you know, I'd beat them in times and they'd beat me and it made it very fun and competitive. And, um, they were friendly. It was very, yeah, it was very friendly. It was obviously friendly. Um, but I started gaining confidence in that. I'm like, Hey, I mean, Casey played on tour. He played with tiger and John just came off the web tour. I'm like, 
I'm beating these guys and I'm beating everyone on my team. And I'm like, all right, I still got this. Like I'm, I'm still really good. And so it gave me, it just gave me a lot of confidence. And then as that started building, I started playing better and better and better. And then it led to, you know, where I am now. It's funny, right before you said uh, I would come off the course shooting par one under, I was actually wondering if 18 pars would be aggravating. Yeah. It, it's it, awful. It, 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 yeah, which is crazy. I mean, you, <laughs> that's that's what's crazy about golf is you could be a guy that shoots 120 and, you know, just shooting one – I mean, you shoot 100 and it's great, but from like you have different ideals of what good is. And so – for me, 18 pars would be like, all right, well, either I'm not putting well or I'm not hitting it close to the hole, and you start getting frustrated. And What's your lowest round ever in or out of a tournament? I've shot 60 a few times. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah I've and never, now, never 59. So. 60 is like, are you lit up? Are you on fire? Are you like, don't talk to me? Are you just like, what's happening? Well, unfortunately, I've never done it in a tournament. I want to do it in a tournament. Um, is it, well, so where did you do it? I mean, you said you've done, uh, I've done it a couple it multiple times. times yeah. Multiple times. The, the first time is the first time. I don't even know if I should say this, but the first time I ever did it was the first time I ever drank on a golf course. Uh oh. Yeah. And is I, that allowed on well, tour? No, it's not no, really allowed not, on tour. No. But John Daly does it. Well, it, it's just funny you say that. I had John Daly's on the golf course when I shot my first <laughs> sixty. So it was in like just a fun little um, member guest, and we're playing from the men's tees, not the tips. So I guess it doesn't count a hundred percent, but. You know, I turned, I think, at four or five under, and then next thing you know, I'm 11 under, <laughs> and I have two holes to go, and the guys in the group are all like, they're kind of getting quiet and weird. And I had no idea. I've been drinking. <laughs> we're having fun, listening to music, and I missed a putt from like 12 feet, and they all started going, oh, no. You know, like they're they're starting to react different than what they were. I mean, they were rooting almost against me because we're playing for money. Right. So now they're rooting for me, and, you know, I start hearing them talking, and, and I go, am I like? You know, I didn't really know. And one of the guys goes, hey, you're, you're like 11 or 12 under or something, aren't you? And I go, well, I've made a lot of birdies. I haven't really been counting. And so on the last hole, I ended up burning the last hole. But, I, you know, I didn't shoot 59. So that was the first time. Um, and then other times, it's, it's they've kind of been the same. I'm having fun with my friends, and I don't really know it. And the next thing you know, I have three holes to go. And I'm like, dang, I'm 10 under. I, I could shoot 59. So your guy's name is John? John, yeah. So do you try to like, do you and John try to emulate that environment on the course? Or I mean, this is, the problem with the tournament is there's a lot of business. Yeah, there's a lot of work to do. Mm. There's a lot of navigating. You got to get there early. You got to walk in. You got to get to the first tee. It's like a lot of like, yeah. Yeah. it's not the same. Is, is there a way to emulate it, though? Well, that's what we try to do. And John does a great job with that. I mean, he constantly is, you know talking trash to me, making fun of me or making fun of other things. So we're laughing. We're trying to keep it the same. Um, but it is tough. It's, I mean, at the same time, there's, it's a little more, it's heightened. Um, right. there's not music blaring, you're not having a couple beers. So, um, it is different, but he, we try to do that. Cause that's when I'm loose. And I think most players are this way. If you're loose and kind of not really caring, you usually play your best. Yeah. It is the ultimate like teaching of golf is the more you care, the worse you will hit the ball. Yeah, that's crazy. Whether it's a long shot, a short shot, or whatever. Yeah. And but there's no way to extricate the two. It, I don't know yeah. how. Yeah, it's I mean, if you find out if there's a special way. Because there's times when there's times when golf seems easy and I don't really you don't really have a care and that's when I've played great. And then there's times when 
I start pressing and trying, and then that's when things go even worse. Yeah. So Troy Mullins, you know, the uh, uh, long drive champion, mm-hmm. said that the the time that she won was when she was looking at the scoreboard, and it was she was disappointed because it wasn't uh, as far as she thought it would sh- it should be the yardage of the of the long drive, and she was actually looking at the wrong uh, board, and it was showing someone else's performance. Oh, really? So she was just swinging freely and i just thought about that from like a regular you know round of 18 perspective and it's like i mean i don't know it would just be great if it just was if you had that ability to just turn that off yeah yeah i'm pretty sure everyone would be better yeah we would all be looking for that um we uh so in also in the realms of the pga tour um world you kind of came into this crazy experience that i can't even imagine what it was like to be a part of where uh who were you paired with at this tournament? Where the the disqualification? Uh, I was playing with Lucas Beergard and Denny McCarthy. So basically, what happens is, and for those of you that are listening, if you don't know how this works, during a tournament, you don't keep your own score. You keep Lucas's score, for example. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to ask usually, right? At the end of a hole, you just know where they're at. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Maybe if they got into some crazy trouble, you would be like, "What was that?" Yeah, and or you write it down, and then in the tent, you you know you write a six, and then you get in. And he's like, "Oh, hey, I actually had a seven on the hole, right? A five, and you go, oh, okay, and then you change it." Right, and so when you came into the tent, you signed a scorecard where they meant to give you a. They were supposed to give you a bogey, but they gave you a par. Yeah, yeah. and somehow didn't notice it, and then you get disqualified. Yeah, it. I mean, it's 100% of my fault. It has nothing. I think um, – actually, I don't even know who was keeping my card, so it's not even on them. It's it's 100% on you. You're, you That's why keep, you sign it. You can keep your score at the top of a scorecard, oh, knowing okay. exactly what you have. And, and I knew I made bogey on that hole. Uh, what really happened is I was doing fine in the tournament, and I missed a short putt on the second hole for birdie and then proceeded to make like three or four bogeys in a row. And um, and so I was, and then coming in, I made a bogey as well. So I was just heated. I went from being all right to then just completely out of the tournament. Essentially, I shot like six or seven over, and I was, I mean, I was just so mad that I walked in. I quick signed the card. I didn't even look. Right. And so it's not on him. And I mean, he saw me get up and down on the hole, and he thought it was for par. But I, I he forgot that I had to chip out, and so that's what right. happened. And so. I mean, I joke, or people joke with me calling me a cheater and stuff, and I'm like, hey, I mean, I cheated, yeah, but I wasn't trying to, and um, yeah, it just, it, it happened. I think everyone on tour has probably done it once, right? and once you do it, you never do it again, so. Yeah, you will never make that mistake No, again. so, I mean, my, you know, my, and people were blaming my caddy, and to his credit, he didn't even have time to get into the scoring tent. Right. I signed it so fast and said, you know, screw this, there's no way we messed it up. We have a score. He was keeping my score, whatever, and um, but yeah, it happened. You know, I, if you don't want to talk about it, no problem. But it makes me think about something that's been on people's minds for a while now. I was at the Presidents Cup. Everybody was talking about Patrick Reed, how he swiped the sand with the back of his wedge, and you know he gets a lot of attention for whatever reason. I don't. Know. It seems like he's always on the wrong side of an argument. I like Patrick. He's done very nice things for me when he didn't have to. And ultimately, that's how I judge somebody. His character to me is when you're nice to someone that you don't have to be nice to. Mm-hmm. Simple. And I've seen a lot of people on tour who have not been nice to me. And I'm kind of like, 
okay, like I get it, you're working. I don't want to make anybody's life harder. But then I've seen a lot of people who have been nice to me when they didn't have to. And that means a lot. And and I think that no matter what your position is in the world, feeling seen as a part of this golf world is important. Patrick did that to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm always going to kind of look at that as my own personal experience with him. The thing that made me feel weird is that everyone's going crazy about him cheating, but Bill did it at a major. And I don't know, maybe you can't talk about it because it's just your world and I would totally understand if you're like, no comment. Yeah. But it is interesting to me, and and I don't like to talk about this stuff. I don't like to talk about politics. I don't like to talk about religion. Anything that's going to create a divisive, you know, discussion is not really what I'm interested in having. But from your perspective, from your own story, what I'm hearing is like, you know, it happens a lot, and it's kind of like knowing the rules is key. Now, I don't know. Should we get into a debate? Do you want to comment on it or not? Really? Um, well, as far I, as... it feels your face is telling me you kind of don't want to comment. Well, yeah. I mean, as far <laughs> I don't really want to throw anyone another bus, but in my instance, I think, I mean, obviously, I did something wrong. I didn't intentionally do it. Right. Uh, the best thing I think in those circumstances is just to own up to it. Right. Um, I think when people people make mistakes in life, if you if you deliberately cheated or accidentally cheated because there's times when you accidentally cheat and you didn't even know the rule right um and then there's times when you do it but if you just own up to it i think people accept that and are okay with it and you know in my instance i just told people i said yeah i screwed up i you know i wasn't deliberately trying to to cheat i mean if i was in in contention maybe you could argue that but i was so far out of contention that um you know, me shaving off one score really didn't mean anything. Right. So, you know, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's at the end of the day, you have to, you have to live with it. And, um, you know, if you can live with it, then that's you. I think I would struggle living with, um, if I purposely shaved off a score and got away with it, I think that would really bother me. So, you know, I just think it all comes down to each it's, it's, it's individual. Yeah. Do you think, uh, sticking on the rules for a second, do you think that, uh, you know, one of the topics in the rules discussion is distance and course um, sustainability for professional golf? Do you see that as an issue at all? I I don't. I don't really know because I just think, I mean, I think they let the cat out of the, the bag a long time ago, and you can't now tone back the ball or tone back the drivers or tone. I mean, it's already there. Like, you've already. Everyone's exposed to it, so you can't do that. Um, it would be so weird it would if all be. of a sudden you were driving at 270. Yes, and, and that's not even fun for, I think, the spectators. The spectators want to see us hit at 330, yeah. and, and they're amazed by that. If we start hitting it only 260, they're like, oh, well, you know, that's kind of what everyone does if there's a limit on the ball um, as far as the ball standpoint. Sure. Um, you know, I think our conditions are tough. I, I really think if I'm a spectator, I want to see birdies. I want to see yeah. the best players in the world do the best things in the world when they're making pars bogeys or doubles it's kind of like well these guys aren't that good you know and that's and you know so i i'm kind of on the the new age of things where i think you know i think the better we get the more fun and exciting the product's going to be yeah i heard um riv they roll the fairways yeah well some of that's that's the other thing that's skewed is some of the like when you play TPC, for instance, if you play this any other time other than this tournament, your ball hits and maybe rolls no more than five, 10 yards. Yeah. Okay. And so out here, I'd be flying it probably 300, 305, and then go to 310. Come tournament week and it's rock hard firm, I'm hitting it 
flying at 305, same thing, but it's rolling to 360. So, <laughs> like, the con- the course is set up for us to hit it even farther. So right. it's not always the golf ball and the equipment. I mean, they made, like you said, they roll the fairways so they're even faster. So we're hitting it 360, 370, 380, and they're just like, oh, my God, the ball's going too far. Well, right. we're setting that up. It's getting that hard bounce. Yep. Well, and also, I, you know, on some level, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but it seems like the swing is changing. Do you know what I mean? Like, it seems like when I see, um, you know, Hovland, Neiman, um, uh, you know, Morikawa, I feel like I see a lot of the same swing. I feel I feel like I see it coming outside. I feel see a little bowed wrist, yep. and I just see them turn through it with like insane speed. Yeah, and it's just a it's just a draw that just stays. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, no one's really hitting a cut, except for DJ and me and you. <laughs> but I mean, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I'm talking. You know, like you're 26. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm like 19. It seems like every kid's swing is identical. Yeah. Well, and that could be I'm not I haven't really paid attention to it, but I do know that now, just like in baseball, the whole thing is hitting home runs. It used to be about contact and batting over 300 and getting on base, and now it's about how many home runs you can hit. It's kind of gone that way in golf, where if you can hit it over 300 in the air, like that's a huge advantage. Yeah. Which I agree, and maybe I've always had distance, so I, I somewhat agree. But I also think there's so much more to golf. I mean, when it comes down to it. I think you putt for dough. The drive is for show, and it does help, and I think it sets you up. But, I mean, Tiger didn't win all of his majors and tournaments by driving 300 yards. He made it because he, he already won those because he was making putts. You uh, just wrote, what's your club head speed? Um, it, well, on average, I'm like a 121, 122 guy. Because with a cut, to be carrying 300, you've got to have a big number there. Yeah, you know it's funny. I don't swing that fast. Um, I mean, there's times maybe when I get up to 125, but you just said I don't swing that fast. Just, just want 121 miles an hour. Yeah, <laughs> but checking. I mean, guys like I mean, there's guys out there that I think that swing a lot faster. I, I just, I think I've been, um, I, I don't know. I think I my smash factor is kind of high, and so I, five five oh five one. Yeah, I think I just, I think I max out of what I put in. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of guys. I mean, there's times. Everyone does this. If you swing as hard as you can, a lot of times you miss the face. Sure. So, yeah, you swung 130, yeah. but it only flew, you know, 295 versus if you hit it center of the face at 121 and it flies 310. Right. You know. Accuracy and precision. Yeah. yeah. Uh, why do you play a cut? It's just what I naturally play. Always been a cut. I wish I could draw the ball really? a lot more, but, yeah. So, if you walked up to, um, you know, a hole like two at Augusta, are you thinking I need to draw this ball? Or are you just like, no, just cut it, just um, cut it, cut it, land it right on that bunker there? Yeah. So I've been able, I've learned, like I've gotten better at drawing a driver. Realistically, I've always thought about this. At Augusta, I would have a strong three wood, so it's oh. easier to draw three wood, and I'd have that thing gooped up where I could just hit a <laughs> sling and draw, and that's what I would hit. Everyone would be like, man, he hits three wood two ninety five. Well, it's more like a two wood. Yeah, know? it's like a spoon. Remember yeah. the spoons? <laughs> yeah, exactly, dude. That's crazy to me. Yeah. It's crazy to me to hear that you just said to me, I've been trying to get better at drawing the ball. Is that because just stats tell you, experience tells you, like, get the one shot. Just just leave the left side out of play and just always play the cut. Is- yeah. Uh, well, definitely. I, I think off the tee, I think that's the best way to play. I mean, you look at Rory. He He's probably one of the best drivers in golf, and he predominantly hits a draw. Yeah. And he almost does it 
like all the time. He can't he, with a wedge even. He, I mean, he draws a lot, and I think there's a lot to having a one shot. But there, um, there's times in courses or wins where being able to at least hit, even if it only drew two yards, it stays straighter and it holds its line, or or you can access left pins wherever right. it is. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking with uh, Brandel uh, Chambly last week, and he was saying that um, the cut is the shot. Uh, because then, you know, it's not going to go as far. It's going to check up. And as a right-handed player, you kind of always want to end up short right of every pin. Yeah. And I was, like, mind blown. I mean, he had these yellow pieces of paper all over the table. It was like he had some stats for, like, how a nuclear reactor worked. Yeah. And I believed him for the first time. I really think I understood, oh, why is a cut actually better? Because at some point, for me as an amateur, like, I can swing it pretty hard. I can I can get the ball out there pretty far sacrifice maybe five ten percent on every club with the cut but gain like accuracy and things like that is that i guess i've understood why you play the cut but why physically do you think you play the cut what is it about your swing and your body that yeah well i for the longest time i played so many other sports and i was kind of i had a homegrown swing growing up i didn't have a coach until later in high school and my move was I kind of sucked it in, and then I shifted out, and the club was over the plane a little bit. And so my natural thing was to then swing left to try to square the face. Yeah. Well, that created a left path, which created a cut. Um, but well, we're talking a degree. Yeah, a few degrees. So, like, I did cut it a huge, but I definitely I had a cut swing. Everyone look at my swing and go, man, that, that's a cut swing. <laughs> um, but, you know, as – that's hard to get rid of. I mean, after it really is. Yeah. I mean, if you've done something for even if, even at a young age, if you do something for six years, it's, it doesn't take, you know, it's not like two weeks and you've got it figured out. I mean, it takes a long time. Well, I'd done that for 15 years or 16 years. And so for me to try to make that better and make a tighter cut and be able to hit both ways has been tough for me. Um, a, a big part of your life and kind of, I think to some extent, you know, parts of your career, at least, and and parts of growing up have been the story that is probably difficult to talk about um, with your mom. And, you know, because of your friendship with Alex, I've, I'd heard about it. And, um, you know, I think that I, I don't quite know how to ask you the question or even really what the question is, but I know that, you know, we are here it's it's uh, it's a couple days after um, Kobe Bryant passed away before his time, and you know I know that my mother had um, come through with cancer, and and it's been a few years now. She's been okay, but there is some part of you know all of our stories, whether whatever we end up doing for a job or for or to to create meaning on like this planet for the life we have. You know, you had a difficult story. Can you um, can you tell me how old you were when your mom passed away? Yeah. Um, so it was 2013 when she passed. Um, I was I just turned 20. Um, and, yeah, I mean, my mom was also a breast cancer survivor. She was like a 14- or 15-year survivor. Um, and then it came back, and it came back very fast, and it was, it was swift. It was we found out and six months later she passed. So it was definitely tough. I mean, it's, I mean, when anyone passes, doesn't matter what the age is, it's, it's tough. But you know, my mom was 
just in her early 50s and still really young. My sister and brother, we were, I mean, we were young. And, um, yeah, it was definitely the toughest thing I've ever had to go through in my life. And, um, you know, there's, I, I don't go very often without thinking about my mom. And, uh, every day. Yeah. You know, the first five years, it was definitely every day. I mean, any little thing, if you said the color pink, my mom worked for Mary Kay, pink would strike that. And I'd think about my mom, or if you said something or, I went and had Italian and they had something that she used to cook all the time I think about my mom so it was very it was it was hard because I couldn't get away from it um, as I've grieved and gotten over it I don't think about it as much but I definitely don't go more than two days um, so she now that I play golf I think about a lot or as a living for a living because she she wanted me to, to do that and to trust you know and trust what I wanted to do and go for my dreams and um, you know, so when I go out there and play, there's a lot of times when I'm having success uh, that I think about her and wish I could hug her after I play or have her here to see this because she was always there when I was younger or or when things are not going well. And I just, you know, I just want my mom there, you know. And so those are the times where I really think about her and it's tough. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of positives that came out of, which is hard to say, but there's a lot of positive things that have come out of my mom passing. There's a lot of people I w- was able to witness to and tell my story about my mom, and it helped them. Or, um, you know, it's just it's given me a better perspective. Um, selfishly, it's helped me as a person grow. Um, it helped our family come together. Um, you know, it it's uh, you know I there's just countless stories where I've I've talked to kids where they were their parents were sick or even adults that were asking me, they're like, man, I've never had to deal with this. Like, what was, what did you do? What was it like? And, you know, it's really humbling to have grown men in their thirties, forties and fifties come to a 20 year old or whatever and ask, you know, like what, 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 what helped you? And, um, there really is nothing easy to say and there's nothing, no magic pill. It's, it's, it's hard. Um, but yeah, my mom's passing definitely shaped my life and, you know, there's, I definitely wish she was here to witness a lot of my success and my my downfalls, whatever it is. I just, you know, I wish she was here. What was her name? Lisa. And did she have like a did she have a thing that she would say like? Yeah. So my mom was so cute. So she, um, when I was really little, and it was embarrassing at the time, um, I would open up my lunchbox and she'd like have this little note with like some cute little thing written on there, and then she'd say some embarrassing thing so i'd open it and my friends would be like oh you know they make fun of me um well that didn't stop in grade school it went on to high school i'd find something in my binder and it'd be some cute thing for my mom and then it didn't stop um when i got to college like what kind of embarrassing thing like well no just stuff when you're a, a young boy you don't want you know your mom's lips and say, love you, mommy. Oh, like, yeah. Love you, sweetheart. Yes. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're the cutest. You're Not whatever. like trying to embarrass you. No, but... never trying to embarrass me. But <laughs> like when you're around with your boys and you, this little note comes out with whatever, I mean, mama's boy, Yeah, mama's boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's before becoming mama's boy is cool. Yeah, exactly. And so, and then as it got cooler, I mean, I didn't mind it. Right. Um, but one thing my mom always did that is still really special and dear to me um, every time before I played any tournament, she'd send me um, a Bible verse. She'd send me how much she loves me, go out there, have fun. And then, you know, she'd always, you know, say some th- little things. And it was every time before I played. And so that's something I really do miss because 
there was times when it would be paragraphs long and I'm like, I really don't want to read. This I'm right tired. Now. Yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, but I would give anything to read those right now. So, um, she, and then her main phrase, and it's something that I've really stuck with me is she always wanted me to play big. Um, and she meant by that was just play for something bigger than yourself. Don't get caught up in, you know, your selfish ambitions. There's people out there that you can witness and be, you know, you're on a, you have a platform to help people. And, you know, my dream is to be the best I can be in golf, not just for, you know, my selfish reasons, but also to then give back and help so many people and, um, help people with cancer, help kids, um, help people less fortunate than me. And that's kind of how my mom raised me. And, and that's really kind of, you know, a testament to how she raised me. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming that she was involved in the decision for you to go to a Christian school as a kid. Yeah. Um, has that been something that you've continued with into your adult life? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's very important to me. And it's something that when my mom was getting close to passing, she just, you know, she urged me and, I mean, when you're on your deathbed and you are telling people wisdom and, and not worrying so much about your selfish needs, it's pretty uh, it's pretty amazing. You listen. And she, my mom was, you know, 51. And, um, you know, she lived way longer than me. And, and she lived a great life. And, you know, her funeral, she had thousands of people there. And I, I like to think about it. You know, I, I hope one day that, I have people there that I touched and my mom touched so many women in Mary Kay and, and, um, you know, and that's something that is important to me. And, um, you know, I hope that one day I I can look back and, and, and people will say, man, that guy really made a difference in the world. Have you found a community on tour with the, um, you know, Larry Moody and the, uh, kind of the, uh, there's, I don't even really know how to say it, but there's, there's weekly, sort of church yeah gatherings. bible studies yeah there's, bible study there's a so college golf fellowship tom randall yeah so i meet with a guy named pete hiskey who um was instrumental his dad in starting college golf fellowship which is a college thing um but it it's a ministry on tour as well so there's um typically tuesdays or wednesdays there's um, a Bible study and it's just great because you go and you meet with other guys on tour and that's kind of where that camaraderie comes from because yeah. you're doing life together with these guys rather than just competing playing golf and trying to beat each other you're also learning about the things they're struggling with you know maybe their mom or their wife or something is going through something and you're just there for them and it's it's uh you know the, the tour really has good community of of great people this is uh, something that I was lucky enough to experience on the Champions Tour. Um, Tom Randall, who's a caddy and a pastor, invited me, and he said, uh, you know, I'd love you to come, no cameras. And, uh, you know, so without asking you to sort of, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell you what I experienced and see if it's similar. I mean, I went in, and I really didn't know what to expect, but it was like Bernard Langer, Tom Kite, just a ton of legends of the game. Yep. All in a in a sort of an annex room of the hotel, nothing fancy. Yep. Um, you know, coffee and cookies, little microphone, little music, some some readings, and it ended with perhaps one of the most beautiful golf quotes I've ever heard, which is Tom ending it all out, and we're all kind of holding hands, and he says, um, you know, competitors. Yeah. And he says, may you uh, may the wind always be at your back, and may you play with the joy that you had as a child. Yeah. And I was like, no way is this a professional sport. 
nowhere these people playing against each other and and you know maybe there's a different vibe on the champion store as far as the camaraderie and the support and the friendship i would like to believe not though i would like to believe that on even on the pga tour the most aggressive sort of arena for golf that 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 would also be like a a grounding space for friends yeah there is i mean it's obviously not a huge amount of guys um you know it's not like there's a hundred guys at, at these studies but you know there's times when there's 10 to 20 and you know, you could be paired with them on Sunday and it really, that's crazy. And what's cool about it is, I mean, you're, you're, you're not rooting for them. Cause obviously you want to win because it, a win changes your life and it's our livelihood. But at the same time, there's just not that head butting. Like it's not, you know, you're not trying to, you don't want to see that. You want to see that guy succeed and you want to succeed. And in, and if you end up succeeding more than him, that's great. Right. But, at the end of the day, you're both going to shake each other's hand, hug, and say, hey, man, that was fun. You know, great job. It was fun to play with you. I mean, it's it's that's what's neat about golf is there's just such great camaraderie, and it's it's a gentleman's sport. Bernard said also when I interviewed him later, I said, so what is it like playing golf as a Christian or whatever? You know, how does that how does that change? And he said, well, you know, for a long time in my life, I wasn't Christian. I had no connection to God. And golf became a lot easier when I stopped playing for Bernard Langer and I started playing for something else, someone yeah. else. Yeah. And that struck me too. And not a Christian myself, it did make me consider converting yeah. because, you know, I mean, I'm sort of joking, but. No, I mean, there's, it. I think in all of history, you look at, you look at like when uh, the Red Sox won the World Series after the Boston Marathon. I mean, they truly, I think, played for something bigger than themselves. They played for their city. And I think not to say that you use something to try to play better in golf, but I, I just think in anything in life, if you do it for something greater than yourself, I think you perform better. But you also get more enjoyment from it because I think there's a lot of guys that have had testimonials where they won a tournament or won a championship. They won a team championship. And then they're like, this is it. I've worked my whole life to do this. And it doesn't quite feel that great. Right. And I think when you do it for something, regardless what it is, if it's for someone else or for a purpose or for something greater than you, then I think you get more enjoyment out of it because it's not just for yourself. Well, it's been a profound and fun experience to talk to you, uh, getting to know you, and I'm looking forward to watching you uh, play big. And, uh, you know, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Sorry I got a little sentimental at the end. but No, it's good. You know, that's that's what happens. I mean, I, my mom's story is very uh, very touching and close to me, and that's part of her story. So I always feel like I have to share that. You got me. I mean, I, I was like, don't don't cry, Eric. It's not even <laughs> your mom. You don't, you don't deserve to cry yeah. over his mom. Yeah. But, uh, no, I appreciate it. And I think, you know, it's one of those things where it's like we all go through life, and I think I don't know what happens, but I'm a pretty sensitive guy, but I get, like, plaque on me. And, you know, you just get tough, and you're like, ah, that person's annoying, this guy's annoying. Why isn't he doing what I told him to do? Da, 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 da. Like, what do you mean my room's not ready? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just like, well, of course. Yeah. well, why am I in a middle seat? Like, I'm. why can't I get one kid? I mean, it's just, and, and it's very hard to, especially when, you know, the world is a competitive place, whether in your position you're, you know, being trying to be the best, and I'm just trying to grow this little golf channel thing. You know, it's, it's hard to just, like, stick a step back and be like, what's actually important to me? Yeah. Like, 
because ultimately that results in kind of letting the gas off of this like incredible drive. Yep. It because you have to basically sit there and be like, why am I even here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were supposed to end the podcast three minutes ago, but you made it keep going. Yeah, I'm sorry. My bad. My bad. My bad. <laughs> Any questions for me? Uh, no, I don't right. think so. All right, I got off easy on this one. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, and um, I'm looking forward to sharing this episode with everybody. Yep. Thank you.